millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before we begin, this podcast is brought to you by the generosity of my Patreon supporters. If you enjoy the content and can spare something to contribute to the cost of running the podcast... You can become a supporter or make a one-off tip via the links in the description. Every penny gets reinvested into improving the content of the show. I love putting these episodes together for you, but production comes with costs attached to it, and if I'm going to grow this and take it to the next level, I do need your help. If you can't contribute or aren't keen, I totally understand, but for those who can and are inclined, you know how grateful I am. Either way, remember to drop a like and leave a review, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Napoleonicist. You can probably hear the smile in my voice already because today I am joined by Christine Hughes Patrone. Some of you will remember that a few weeks back Christine was on talking about her book Waterloo Witness. That brilliant, in my opinion, book that talks about the civilian nature, fundamentally, of what happened over the course of the Waterloo campaign and weaves that deftly into the much more well-known military story that unfolds over those few days. Today, though, we're not talking about Waterloo. Wellington Month is continuing unabated, and we are talking about the women in Wellington's world. We've had a, a good laugh about various things already, Christine, it's great to see you again. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderfully well after our little chat. You always cheer me up. Oh, well, that's very kind of you. We, uh, we won't regale our uh, listeners with details of, of what we've just discussed, but let's, let's dive straight in um, because we, we've been talking about things, including kind of how incestuous this whole world kind of, well, I say incestuous, quasi-incestuous. We were talking about this just last night, weren't we, about all of the different people and how the same names keep coming up and they're all interrelated with one another and person X has slept with person Y who is related to person Z who actually is then you know conducting business with person X all over again and it, it just all goes around in circles. Who, whose son married X's daughter and it, it just keeps going on and on so 
I, I finally understand why there was the, all the court guides published that were, because you, you needed to have it just to say, wait, I'm having a dinner party and X, Y, and Z are coming in. And who are they again? And how am I related? Am I related to them? What? I, I don't know. You know, you, you don't want to make the faux pas of saying, oh, that Lord, you know, B can't stand him. And then you've, you've forgotten that, you know, it's their son or brother-in-law or whatever, which would yeah. have been very easy to do. Absolutely. It's incredible. And folks are going to get a sense of this as we as we unfold this episode. I suppose we need to kind of talk about the elephant in the room, not to be rude about the Duke. Um, because, but I, I want to particularly talk about the world in which he interacted um, with people. But that inevitably means covering him, but not making the conversation solely about him. So in the interest of sort of dealing with the monolithic personality, give us your thoughts on Wellington, the man. And I, I ask this thinking that you'll probably have a very different slant on him to the rest of uh, the folks who've featured on the podcast so far, because we've all approached this from a military angle when commenting on the Duke's life. You approach it from his actual life angle. Yeah, the social life, his family, his friends, the behind the scenes Wellington, actually. And, um, you know, he had such a, um, a presence and such a commitment to the monarchy, to England, to the government. And it was very apparent to everybody. There's, you know, a diverse stream of people who all independently write. He's the most honest man I know. He's the most trustworthy man I know. Um, you know, he has my complete confidence. And, you know, this is everybody from somebody's daughter to William the Fourth. You know, and, and everybody in between. Now, Mrs. Arbuthnot, who I think knew him best because he's, he was there at their house or he, they were with him practically every day of the year. And she, you know, people think they had an affair and she was in love with him. And she admits it, that she adores and loves him the same as she does her husband and her husband's children because she never actually had children. So Charles's first, the kids from his first um, wife, she became their stepmother really and truly. So she, he really was like family to her. And if you read her journal, you know, she lauds him, she praises him, but she also writes about him warts and all. You know, and, and how people in the cabinet, people who were, you know, on his side and in his corner, even they complained about the way he treated them. You know, when, when a crisis was looming, when he was under pressure, he was very curt, he was very short, he was very nasty, he was very, you know. And she says, I tell him all the time, you know, you, you have to play that down. You have to, you know, realize that, these people are in your corner and, you know, don't don't speak to them. You're hurting their feelings. And, you know, he was kind of like hurting their feelings, which always reminds me of, you know, I gave them their their orders and they wanted to stay and discuss them. 
No, there's no discussion, <laughs> you know. So, you know, he was many-sided. Let me, let me put it that way. And there's a lot that could be said against him. A lot of it is true, but there's always a reason behind it. And if you look under the layers, you, you, you usually find it and excuse it, is, is all I can say. You know, without, like without seeming like a Wellington, you know, cult follower or what, what is that word that's always used, the, the cult of Wellington? Yeah, the cult of Wellington versus the cult of Napoleon. Um, and if you have a favorable opinion of, of um, Wellington, and it, particularly if you're British, I have to say, if, if you're British, and I speak from experience here, if you're British and you praise Wellington, you are automatically cult Wellington regardless of your actual opinions. People don't bother to kind of dig into what you're actually saying. It's, well, you're in favor of Wellington, therefore you're, 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 you're in the cults because you're British. Hmm. Hmm. We, we, we could um, respond to that, but we, we, uh, we won't in the interest we'll of- We'll just you know, move on. We, we will. <laughs> that, that sounds like a, a good idea from a, a podcasting engagement perspective. I like how you put that, that there's, there are many flaws to the guy but there are reasons behind those flaws. And I think that's important to acknowledge. And I, you know, I know, I'm not gonna say I know them all. I hope I don't know them all. I hope there's still room for me to learn, but I still love them warts and all. But when we were planning this episode, I really liked something that you said because you turned around to me and you said that you wanted to look at the real women in Wellington's life which basically means we're not going to do that predictable thing of just fixate on his mistresses. Um, like, for example, Harriet Wilson, the, of publish and be damned fame. That said, he did, and we should also say that Harriet Wilson, as came as quite a shock to me when we were talking about this last night, um, rears her head on a number of occasions, and we'll get to that. Boy, will we get to that. Um, he did have a number of mistresses. So it would be odd to just kind of completely ignore that aspect of his life. So with that in mind, and with the obvious caveat that, you know, there are plenty of individuals, male and female, who've had affairs before this period, during and, and since, how bad a husband was Wellington? Wellington was an awful husband, a horrible husband. Um, but it had nothing to do with any affair that he might have had. They were just mis matched. She annoyed him. She was kind of cringy and needy and that's, you know, he had no patience for that. So already they're starting out on the wrong foot and it went downhill from there. Um, you know, he was gone most of, most of the childhood of both of his boys. So they grew up with you know, um, absorbing their mother's feelings towards Wellington, which was one of kind of um, clingy, needy, uh, you know, let's not annoy him. He has to be pleased, you know, at all costs. I don't know why she thought that because he wasn't even in the country. So, and his, his big bugaboo was money. He didn't begrudge her or anybody money, but he never wanted to 
you know, because it was so big at the time, people trying to escape their creditors. And, you know, being a debtor was like the worst thing. So at one point when he was out of the country, somebody, somebody in the family mentioned to him that so-and-so, a tradesman, had come to them and said, you know, the Duke of Wellington's bill for milk or something, you know, something ridiculous is still not paid. In any case, it got back to Wellington and he went ballistic and wrote to, you know, a horrible letter to Kitty saying, I gave you X amount of money. If you found, because you're there on the ground, managing the house, if you find that's not enough, all just write to me and I'll give you more. Whatever you think you need, you'll have. But don't be afraid of me to the point where, oh, I couldn't possibly ask him for, you know, any more money. And then it's going to get around town that I don't pay. That to him was evil. So, you know, it was a... What am I trying? It was like a domino effect. You know, that this didn't work and that didn't work. And then she did this and he did that. And never the twain shall meet is the kind of thing. But so many people write that, you know, I went to Apsley House or I went to Stratfield Say. And, you know, everybody's there in their glittering gowns and jewels and, you know, Levens there being the bell of the ball or whatever. And here's Kitty sitting, no matter winter or summer, in her plain white Muslim gown, invariably in a homemade bonnet, you're sitting outside of the circle and just kind of looking adoringly at, at Wellington all night. That's, that's not what he needed. He needed a hostess. He needed someone who was going to step up and step in and step to the forefront. And that's really why I think he attached himself to Harriet Arbuthnot. Not that Harriet was, you know, Lady Jersey or Princess Levin in the, the jewels and the ostentation and all that. But, you know, she kept up with him and Kitty could never do that. No, as you say, they were, they were poor. But match. here's what's interesting. There's so little written about Kitty, really. Um, and one of the things that everybody falls back on is um, Maria Edgeworth. Um, you know, she, she left diaries, letters. And she talks about, because she was related to Kitty somehow, a cousin or a family friend or something. So Maria Edgeworth writes about how when Kitty was dying at Apsley House, she went to visit her and she was all alone in a room in the in the gloom, surrounded by all these, you know, remembrances of Wellington and the poor thing. Thank God I went or who? Well, actually. Mary Ann Patterson. Was visiting her at the time. And also Angela Burdett Coots. Wellington stayed home every night with her. 
So, you know, if, if you go with those tried or true anecdotal sound bites of history, oh, what a terrible man he was. Oh, you know, you could just imagine poor Kitty, you know, have you been to Apsley House? When you go, you know, it's kind of cold now. The downstairs is, is kind of cold and severe because they've taken everything up because they have multitudes of people coming in now that it's open to the public. But, you know, if you put that together with the picture she draws and it's like, oh, this poor woman. Well, it wasn't like that at all. And, so. the, and the other thing that's quite telling about her death is, yes, that there is that, you know, this image of her dying pretty much alone, but there's also the flip side to that. And this, this really kind of is a head scratch for me. There's that story that she runs her finger up his forearm. The armlet. Yeah, looking for the armlet and it's there. And you just think, and, and the point is that he's been wearing it for a solid 20 years. And so the or contradiction- ha Or has he, or has he? But would he think you know, it's that? An, I've never I've never heard that mentioned before. But then again, who who else would know? You know, I mean, he didn't go around in a crew neck T-shirt in the summer. So I don't know. But, the, you know, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things that nobody knows about Wellington that I found out from 30 years of of accessing every disparate source you can think of, not the user, beyond the usual suspects. So that makes me kind of feel how much of the usual suspects that just keep being regurgitated is true to begin with, like his mistresses. Not, you know, not one person ever said, Harriet Arbuthnot at one point when Marianne is going to marry Richard, Artie is not happy about this, not because of her. I won't go into the story right now, but my point being that even Mrs. Arbuthnot says his love for her is, has long been at an end. So, you know, that's the only validation we have. And if he was in love with her, how far did it go? You know, I, I'm by no means championing the theory that he only had sex twice and those were the two kids. And then after that, you know, he became a choir boy. I'm not saying that. But how much of what's intimated or gossiped about did he have? I'm sure he must. He was, you know, a, a healthy man. I'm sure he did have a mistress or mistresses, but are they who we think they are? Because, you know, I never said, oh, and he was here with Lady Jersey and then they went in the corner and then, you know, the next night I saw him again with Lady Jersey at this entertainment. There's none of that about anybody. So, uh, you know, I'll believe that he had X, Y, or Z as a mistress definitively when and if I have proof. Until then, I'll, go, I'll agree with it. I'll go along with it. But I'm not going to say it's absolutely the truth because there's too much I found out that isn't the truth. You know, the, the armlet is mentioned once. 
I don't know. I, I don't see him wearing it for 20 years because Kitty gave it to him. I, I really don't. It's, it it's romantic. It's, it's a nice anecdote. It, it resolves him in the end somewhat. But do I think it's absolutely true? No. This is the problem we have, isn't it? That so much about Wellington is apocryphal. That Yes. Uh, exactly. And as I was putting it into um, the, the thing I did at the start of this month, I, I said to, to our listeners, it's a real head scratcher in terms of trying to square that with everything else that we think we know about um, the, uh, that we do know about the relationship between um, Arthur and Kitty, which was not a, a harmonious one by, by any means. No. Um, let's, let's. And you know with- what, you know, what's strange is I've done a timeline of Wellington's life. As I come across, you know, letters, journals, whatever with dates, I've made a working timeline. He never once spent Christmas at home or with her. Wow. Now, here's another thing. A lot of times, you know, many, 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 98% of people who say I was at Woburn and the Duke was there or whatever. Nobody ever mentions Kitty. Was Kitty there? We don't know. If she was, she was a non-entity. So every time he was somewhere else for Christmas, was she there with it? Nobody mentions her. You know, and usually they'll say other guests included Lord and Lady Jersey, Prince and Princess Levin, you know, Lord and the the Shelleys. They only ever say Wellington. And is that because he was Wellington or because Kitty really wasn't there? Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? I like it when historians do that. I like it when they take a source and read it against the grain and go, so what does this actually mean? Yeah. 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 What does it mean? Very strange. We could theorize about that all night, couldn't we? That's that's curious because, as you say, the the inclination is, if they were both there, then Welling, Lord Wellington and Lady Wellington, or um, the Duke of Wellington, and you know, th- th- there should be some reference. Yes, there's but, never a reference in in, in Creevy, in Greville, in Shelley, in Arbuthnot, in what whatever source. Nope, <laughs> I, I find it very strange. It is. But on the, the flip side to that is that, you know, Wellington has this kind of eclipsing influence. And we know that that was kind of a thing because his son was almost sort of neurotic about you know what's going to happen when they announce the Duke of Wellington and only I walk in. So, so there mm-hmm. is that, that counter side to it. It's, it's yeah, we could talk about this. Now, now, you know, here's the thing. You're talking about Duro, Arthur, yeah. Arthur too, who was kind of... Um, kind of quiet, kind of withdrawn, I guess, because he knew the fate that awaited him and the shoes he would have to fill. Whereas the younger son, Charles, everybody loved him. Everybody remarked how much fun he was, how, you know, he kind of gave his father the, um, you know, flipped his nose at his father somewhat in the way that he would 
Josh back with him or, you know, make some kind of a joke and wasn't scared of him at all. And was the life and soul of the party a lot of times, you know, the 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 older people, Wellington's contemporaries would love when Charles would come because he kind of livened up the party. So I don't know. You can just imagine that being the sort of character that Wellington would respond to better because he liked that wit, didn't he? He liked the other one was just a a lot of kitty. Yeah. You know, Dora. Mm hmm. I do feel bad for Kitty and just staying with her for a moment longer. She changes a lot, doesn't she? Because she has that phase of illness. And so for folks who aren't familiar with the story, they, Wellington asks for her hand in marriage when he's far too junior for anybody to have any confidence about his career prospects and his ability to provide for her. It's rejected. He goes away, does his whole thing in India, comes back. And am I right in thinking that the situation actually gets manipulated. Olivia um, Sparrow. Yeah, you, you're the person to tell people about this. So I'm gonna shut up and, and let you tell the story. Somebody whose name I can't remember, but an, an army officer went home on leave and somehow ran into this Olivia Sparrow and comes back and says to Wellington, oh, I saw Olivia Sparrow, who at this point, I don't think they knew each other personally. And, you know, we got to talking about um, Kitty and um, Olivia Sparrow said, well, she wouldn't be adverse to picking up the friendship again. And why doesn't he write to her? And, you know, since he left, she hasn't seen anybody or, you know, no rant romantic involvement, and she would be open to renewing the friendship. Now, eight months go by. Artie writes back to Olivia. She replies, you know, we, actually what's said isn't important, but the fact is, by the time we get to where Kitty says, okay, let's renew, It's been like eight months. And by that time, he's kind of now locked into it. I don't have the answer for you because A, she had been engaged or at least was asked to be married by Lowry Cole, number one. And number two, you know, he says to uh, Mrs. Arbuthnot years and years later when she questions him and says, what the hell? (laughs) And he says, I'm the biggest idiot on the face of the earth. And I'm the first to admit it. And, you know, when when I got word from Olivia Sparrow that, you know, Kitty was still interested, by that time I figured I'd never be in love again. It was time, you know, I was at an age where I needed to get married, so I might as well marry her. Yeah, it was the stupidest thing I've ever done. But here, you know, again, here's the thing. What do you mean you'll never be in love again? Who were you in love with? Because as far as we know, there was no great passion in India. 
And that's where he was up till then, for the most part. So there's another one of those little, you know, breadcrumbs. So, you know, 200 years on, I, I have no answer for you. He apparently had no answer for it either. You know, there's, there's no more that we know about it to be able to elaborate on it any more than that, honestly. And, and even me, after all the research I've done, can't, can't figure it out. But if you can't figure it out, there's no chance of me figuring it out, <laughs> let's be honest. So let's... Well, you let's... know, Olivia Sparrow wasn't uh, on the up and up either there. You know, there had been Lowry Cole and who knows if there was anyone else. Not that I'm mentioning impropriety on Kitty's part, but, you know, she certainly wasn't in the convent, which, you know, why should she have been? Absolutely. I know you were keen to talk about Wellington's niece um, over the course of this, Priscilla, and you sent me some notes. But again, let's be frank, I'm pretty ignorant about these these different individuals and um, the, the significance of them, which is part of the reason that I was so keen to have you on. So... I'm just going to hand over to you and let you enlighten us about her. What's the what's the relationship? What's the deal? Priscilla was, you know, uh, Will, brother William, William Wellesley Poe. And his son was Wicked William. You know this story? Who married that she was the richest heiress in England at the time, Catherine Tilney Long. And she married brother William. She married Wellington's nephew. And that didn't work out at all. I won't even go there. But his name in society was Wicked William. So his sisters were were the three Wellesley girls who were uh, Wellesley Pole, who were, you know, all very attractive, all very desirable as wives, you know, the whole thing. So Priscilla marries Lord Bergerish, who Wellington knew. He was junior to Wellington, but Wellington knew him. And Bergerish went on to be Lord Westmoreland eventually. But so, you know, they had children. She was his favorite niece. And he wrote to her all the time about everything. You know, her kids and how's your health and are you sleeping well? And and then when she came back to England and had children, you know, boy, that was it. Because he he loved everybody else's children because he had the time for for them then. So, uh, you know, when you say Wellington's women, she has to be one of them just like the ladies Salisbury, you know, old lady Salisbury, Emily Cecil was a true eccentric and somehow a, a distant cousin of Wellington's. And she lived at Hatfield house. That's the Salisbury family seat. And they have that famous Hatfield hunt every year. And um, their color is light blue. And so Emily gave Wellington one of the hunt jackets 
to wear on his campaign. And that's the jacket that everybody talks about him wearing at Waterloo. Yeah. For people who obviously can't see this because it's an audio podcast, my gob has just hit the floor <laughs> at that. Yes. Wow. Yes. And she, well, he went every year that he was in England to the Hatfield Hunt. And he, you know, she, they, they were in each other's company a lot. He liked her. Old Lady Salisbury, who unfortunately in, in the 30s, was in a room by herself writing and somehow set her, her cap afire. And uh, by the time the servants heard her and got to her, she was really badly gone, you know, dead and really badly burnt. The room was totally on fire, but the poor woman, that's how she died. So now her son becomes Lord Salisbury, yes? So he, Artie has known the new, the now new Lord Salisbury since he was a boy, since his birth. So Lord Salisbury gets married. And I'd have to look it up. We need that court guide. Trust me, it's somebody whose father, whose parents we all know. Off the top of my head, I can't. But anyway, so they go on to have children. And every time she had a child, Wellington would give her Walmer Castle to use, to convalesce in. And he himself would move out and say, look, go to the seaside. Nobody's going to bother you. You know my servants. They'd love to have you. You'll feel like you're at home and I'll go stay somewhere else while you're there. You know, I really just want you to rest. So this happened, you know, two, three, four times, whatever. And then that poor woman died. Lord Salisbury got married again, again to somebody we probably all know. And the same thing happened. I think she had like five or six kids, more kids. And she named each and every one boys and girls, Arthur. Arthur was somewhere in their names you know, Angela Arthur or Arthur Arthur, or, I mean, even the girls had Arthur in their name. So, yeah. And then he writes to her and he sends, I can't, now I can't remember if it was one of the Salisbury ladies or Priscilla, but he sends them a baby jumper. I laughed about this with Lynn Bryant a lot. He sends them a baby jumper. That's some kind of contraption that's screwed into the ceiling. You know, kind of like we have today where you put the baby in and they can kind of bounce around on it and, and amuse themselves. I'm with you now, yeah. Okay. That sort of a thing. But if I tell you how many letters he wrote about the proper installation <laughs> of this and have, have your estate card, don't trust it to Lord whoever have somebody who knows what they're doing and i think the hook should be you know i mean like a, a military campaign and that you know, lynn and i always laugh because you know poor lady salisbury is probably saying just burn the damn thing i, I can't take another letter about this baby jumper get rid of it <laughs> that's so wellington though I, 
That's uh. why we laugh. You know, and and telling Angela Burdett Coots, I saw you out the other day and you didn't have galoshes on. Haven't I told you not to go out without your galoshes? Yeah. Yeah. And when Priscilla was going out to meet Lord Bergerish, wherever he had been posted, you know, Artie had access to everything, the army, the Navy, the ordinance, the everything. He planned her departure from England to the minute and what, you know, what coach road she should take, what inn she should stop at, what time she should arrive at Dover, what the man who was going to meet her, you know, the, the admiral or the captain or whatever of the Navy ship, what he looks like, you know, like, because God forbid there might be another naval captain waiting there for Lady Bird. But I mean, you know, every little minute of every step of that journey was precision planned by Wellington. Is this a sign of Wellington? OCD? Well, yes, uh, quite obviously Wellington and OCD. But it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that this is Wellington in full military mode. And I just wonder whether this kind of smacks of Wellington being a bit bored of civilian inverted commas life you know he hasn't got a campaign he was to never he was never bored in civilian life was because he, he was never allowed to be bored he never had a civilian life you have no idea all the pots his fingers were in whether he wanted them to be or not during the reigns of george the fourth william the fourth and to some extent queen victoria George IV dies, yes? Lady, uh, Lady Cunningham is his mistress. We think she has some crown jewels that Prinny gave her that weren't, weren't really in his remit. To, like Queen Charlotte's diamonds and pearls to start oh with. Oh so who do we get to negotiate with her and get the return of these jewels? Take a guess. Wouldn't happen to be our Attie, would it? It would. Um, George IV dies. And what are we going to do with Mrs. Fitzherbert's letters? Because Artie was, her ex was his executor, one of his executors. So after the death and the funeral, he goes down to Windsor and goes through the, you know, the king's wardrobes, which had to be like literally rooms and rooms and rooms. And he finds all kinds of love letters, not from any, but, you know, oh, you were so cute at the party the other night, you know, wink, wink from lady, whatever, that he never had a thing, but in, in pieces of their hair and nose gaze and all this stuff. And Wellington basically says, now a lot of it, interestingly, was the perk of his, of George IV's valets, the wardrobe was. And they had a big auction and raised money for themselves after his death. But whatever was left, all this, you know, for want of a better word, crap, Wellington said, just put it all in a big fire and burn it. What are we going to do with it? Get rid of it. 
But this brought up the question of, okay, so where are his really important letters? You know, the, the really sensitive ones that we don't want anybody knowing about. So the hunt was on, they found them. Of course, Knighton knew exactly where they were, Sir William Knighton, who's another piece of work and another story in himself. But anyway, now who do they get to approach Mrs. Fitzherbert and say, hey, about those 20 years worth of letters. And she says, you know, to you, they're sensitive documents that you want destroyed. To me, they're memories and there's things I want to keep. And how do I know that I'm going to get all of his back? So this, there was this very delicate back and forth. You know, we can't upset her. We have to play nice, but we have to say what we want and how we want it. And Wellington affected this. And in the end, they made lists of everything that they had on both sides and they swapped it. I think Wellington immediately burnt everything of hers, but he didn't. He respected her feelings and he didn't destroy anything that, that she had given him until after her death. And then he did it by her fireside. And it took hours. At one point, Wellington said to, I think it was Lord Ashburton was with him, said, you know, we, we got to hold off for a while or we're going to set this woman's uh, fireplace on fire. You know, the whole house is going to go up. We got we to let things cool down a little here. So what happens is they allow her to keep certain letters, certain documents. So it took three years to affect this, this switch over of documents. Three Prinny, years? Yeah, because Prinny died in 30, right? And the agreement with Mrs. Fitzherbert wasn't reached till 1833. So he, he allows her to keep, you know how your jaw drops? Here's another one. The mortgage on the palace at Brighton. So apparently he had a mortgage taken on that. And I suppose she got an annuity from it or something. Yeah. Their certificate of marriage 1 size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. A letter from the, from the king relating to the marriage, a will written by the late king, a memorandum by the clergyman who performed the ceremony. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, so here's, here's what happens is Wellington takes all these documents and puts them under seal in a, in a box and puts it in Coots's bank and tells everybody who, who will listen they will never be opened. That's the stipulation. And if anybody ever tries to open them in my lifetime, let it be known that I will, uh, I'll make a case of it in the court of chancery. So these papers lingered at Coots Bank until like 1906. It wasn't until then that they were transferred supposedly unopened to the Royal Archives at Windsor, where supposedly they still are. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I wonder if uh, certain people are going to start um, trying to organise visits there to see if they can access those documents now. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, Wellington's, a- Wellington's point was these can never see the light of day because they so clearly prove that he shouldn't have been king. Mm. You know, what a can of worms that's going to be. See, I was going to ask you, why get Wellington to do all of this? But it's kind of implicit implicit what you just said, isn't it? (laughs) Because they knew that they could trust him. Everybody knew they could trust him. And, And here's the bigger thing. Everybody knew that whatever it was that you wanted him to do, if he agreed it was the right thing, he never had himself or his advancement or anything he could put in his pocket at the back of his mind. It was always purely for that, for the good of the nation, for the good of the monarchy, for the good of whatever it was. He never had a personal agenda. And the, yeah, everybody knew that. One of the particularly fascinating ladies that we've we've touched on already is Princess Lieben. Mm-hmm. And this is another really curious one that initially you mentioned it and not being familiar with the social circles. When you said love letters and Metternich, I kind of went, what? <laughs> but having with you having told me about this, I love this one. So regale us with this. Well, I was going to call it you know, kind of a juicy piece of 19th century gossip, but from what we've discussed, <laughs> this is just kind of the norm. It's, it's all happening all of the time. You know, there's, there's so many political intrigues going on. Like, let's get back to Harriet Wilson. Let's do it, yeah, because we need, we need, boy, do we, we need to We will get to leave, and I promise you, but yeah. we have Harriet Wilson who... Um, In 1824, her publisher approaches Wellington and says, I'm publishing her memoirs and you're in there. And 
if you don't want to be in there, it'll cost you whatever. You know, he doesn't name the figure, but he lets it be known. And Wellington says what? Publish and be down, right? That's December 1824. In 1825, in July, Mrs. Arbuthnot writes this. Wellington has written me word that at the cabinet the other day, Mr. Canning said he knew no difficulty would be made by the king about receiving ministers from the new states of America. This is actually South America. Okay. And in his private room afterwards, he told the Duke that Lord Ponsonby, John, brother of Major General Sir William, who died at Waterloo, was to be employed at one of these new courts. And the reason that he had threatened, Ponsonby had threatened to make his residence in this country unpleasant to Lady Cunningham, George IV's mistress. She was formally, Cunningham was formally Ponsonby's mistress. And it is said he gave her letters, the letters Cunningham had written to Ponsonby, to Harriet Wilson. It is pleasant to feel how perfectly unnecessary principles of honesty or honor are in the choice of a representative for England. I believe Lord Ponsonby is a clever man, but he is a ruined gambler, profligate, and Lord Grey's brother-in-law, the last person one would think fit for such a situation. Then we have, sticking with Harriet Wilson, up until 1828, she's still writing to George IV and still saying, I've got more on you and I'll publish it unless. So now he's being blackmailed by Harriet, not only about himself, but about his mistress. Now, how many people know that backstory? They all, all know publish and be damned. But there was so many intrigues and behind the scenes things going on. It's, it's really laughable to think that Wellington, prime minister, head of the army, head of the ordinance, whatever, that he ever had that those duties aside, a spare minute to himself. Because whenever anybody had anything like this that needed to be solved, who did they call? You know, and Wellington himself complained many times, you know, even the lowliest creature on earth, even like a pit donkey, gets a Sunday off. The only creature on earth who never gets a day off is the Duke of Wellington. Yeah. <laughs> I love how you put it as well. You can just, you, you can hear it, can't you? It's so unfair. Why do they bring all of this to me? <laughs> Why have I got to solve all of these problems? Again? You know, wow. and then everything that the Duke of Cumberland got up to and the Duke of York. And, you know, there's so many behind the scenes stories that he was involved in. And, you know, Cumberland comes from Hanover and starts, you know, this whole Wellington 
amaliates George IV as far as the Catholic emancipation question is. Okay, you know, Wellington goes back to the cabinet and goes, okay, I got him on our side. He's good. You know, we're, we're good to go now. Well, here comes the Duke of Cumberland from Hanover residing with his brother now, you know, not even getting a hotel or his own house, but staying with the king and in the king's ear. And within a week, he's got him, you know, feeling, oh, we can never do that. It's against my coronation oath, you know. Now, now Wellington's like, nah, here we go again. I got to start from square one. In addition to getting the jewels back, in addition to Richard marrying his ex-mistress, and in addition to Kitty, and in addition, I don't know how the man honestly didn't crack at any point after Waterloo. Not even Waterloo. Waterloo was like like the coup de grace, the icing on the cake to all those years of all the battles and death and horror he had seen. And then he has all this monarchy madness going on back in England and everybody needing a piece of him. And he, he just never cracked. Except for, you know, when he snapped at the people around him. And, you know, if you look at my timeline and you figure out all the balls he was juggling, for him to have been a little snappy might be excusable in my book. Absolutely. Again, it's, it's like you kind of read what I was going to say next, because I was about to say, I can see why you've put a timeline together of all of this, because... Yeah. You've got some very serious constitutional issues that he's dealing with over the course of his time, whether it be foreign secretary or um, particularly, obviously, as prime minister. And yet he's also having to deal with things that you look at and you just think, this is so petty. This is sort of the 19th century equivalent of almost the only way is Essex or something. You know, (laughs) he said this and then she said that. And then, well, you did this and I've got that. It's it's playground-esque. And then you have, you know, if you want to go to Essex, we can, because, I mean, George IV, every time he, poor, poor Artie has so much on his plate. Can we just, can I go down there and we'll discuss X and you can give me an answer and then we can move on to Y? Well, no, we can't do that because I'm still in bed and I had 250 drops of laudanum. 250? 250 drops of laudanum and a bottle of brandy. So, you know, what kind of condition is George IV in? That's why Wellington was so happy when William IV came, because he's like, I go to Windsor and in an hour, I do what took me a month with the old king. So for me, I'm very happy. Thank you. Might actually have, you know, sort of that Sunday off after all. But then, you know, he'd go down there and, and the laudanum aside, Lady Cunningham wasn't treating him so good and she wanted this and, you know, can you fix that? Can you go talk to her and see if you can soothe her about this or that? Really? Wow. It's, this is why I wanted to bring you onto this show because it's just a, a different world. So now we have at the same time, you know, all, all this mind blown officially stuff and, the, and his full plate. 
Now we have your good friend, Princess Lima, who, this is really interesting to me, wasn't a real princess at all. Okay, she was Madame de Lieven, and her husband was ambassador from Russia to the court of St. James. His mother, his mother had been governess to the czar. You know, right. <laughs> Constantine and Nicholas, uh -huh. that, that um, generation. And when that younger generation came to the throne after Alexander's death, he created his govern governess, a princess, and extended it to all her children and family. That's how Princess Levin was a princess. So that was like, you know, society's joke. Yeah, princess, princess of what? You know, come on. <laughs> And Lady Jersey, you know, and, and Esther Hazy, Lady Esther Hazy, oh my God, Princess Esther Hazy, what am I saying? You know, they really look down their nose at her. But so Levin comes, okay, and Levin's like, he's ineffectual. He's not good, he's not bad. He wouldn't have caused any trouble. You know, he, he wouldn't have muddied the waters, but he wouldn't have really done anything. And Princess Dorothea, she was really kind of savvy as far as politics and intrigues and who we want to go to war. You know, she decided for Alexander, little did he know who we're going to be friends with and what we're going to agree with. And so to that end, people say she slept with Wellington. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. But there was also Palmerston and his Russian background is just, again, jaw dropping, but anyway, and Gray and Metternich among many others. And she was always, you know, kowtowing and playing up to Wellington until Canning came along. And somehow Canning had a, a little better outlook towards Russia or maybe not even towards Russia. I'm still not sure about this. Um, maybe Russia's policy with Greek, Greece or Turkey or something that she thought he would be more receptive to than Wellington. And she turned her back on Wellington and she, you know, intrigued a lot. And he found out a lot of things that she did behind his back while to his face saying something else. So while this is all going on and while she's not speaking to him, she comes to him, why? Because he's the most honest, upstanding and least self-serving man she knows, right? And this is now 1828. Well, well, here's what Mrs. Arbuthnot says about her. I saw Madame de Levin yesterday. There never, never was any person in such a, a position as she is in. She disgusted all parties by her uncalled for interference in our internal concerns. 
behaved with base ingratitude to the Duke of Wellington and is now furious because he has, in fact, put her back into her proper place, viz. ambassadress from Russia. He neither considers her as his friend nor as a politician, and that she cannot brook. Wow. So he's made it very clear in society, okay, that he's not happy with her. What a takedown. That's just magnificent. So now her marriage, about the same time now, when it's clear to her and everyone that she's not Wellington's favorite person. She begins for some reason that I can't put my finger on yet. She begins to worry about her letters to Metternich and his to hers, because they had met at Verona years ago and carried on this affair. I mean, they only saw each other two or three times in their entire lives, but they threw their political lots in together. And, you know, a lot of skullduggery was going on behind the scenes. And she knew this because here's 1820. She writes to Metternich. I am anxious about the fate of my last letter. Please let me know for certain if number 114 has reached you without signs of having been broken open. If it was tied up and sealed, if it was in a black wrapper, which in its turn ought to have had a great many seals. I must know this to set my mind at rest. Mm. Then the, you know, there's another one in 1823. Leave into Metternich. Your ambassador has heard that the French police are in possession of one of your letters to me, written a year ago at most. I think it is the one in which you made fun of France. Oh, dear. Yeah. So the author's note in the Arbuthnot Journal says certain letters were intercepted and copied by the French police. These copies were published during the present century in the review of whatever it's in French and I can't say it. But yes, they were being intercepted. Can, Can you imagine if all that was divulged? So she goes... To Wellington, this is now, now we're back at 1830. Dorothea entrusted the Duke with her letter to Metternich, in which she requested that he, Metternich, return her letters in exchange for his. So here we go again, okay? She She wrote to the Duke asking that Wellington should seal her letter in an envelope that he would personally address to Metternich. And since there is everything to risk, this is in quotes, if my husband sees me receiving a letter from you that I will not let him see, she asked the Duke to address his reply instead to her close friend, Emily Lady Cooper, later Lady Palmerston. Wellington answered at once, 
telling Dorothea that she, not he, had sacrificed their friendship to her zealous exertions for Russia. Nonetheless, he would faithfully carry out her commission. Hmm. What a guy, huh? Yeah. And I'm not even being funny. Instead of slamming the door, the door in her face, he does this for her. Yeah. That gives you the measure of the guy, doesn't it? That despite all of what you've described and kind of dropping him like a hot potato when it didn't suit, he still... Now, having said what a guy, you know, yes, if you think of it, he could have slammed the door in in her face, but I'm sure he was also aware of all the sensitive material Mm -hmm. that could have undone the nation, literally. Yeah. And started wars. Yeah. That's that's given me a completely different slant on foreign policy during this period. There, listen, how- listen, there was no government during this period. Put that out of your mind. It was all done behind the scenes and by people you would least suspect, like Princess Leva. The power she had was immense and mind-blowing. That's incredible. It never really mattered if it was Canning or Peel or Wellington or Gray or whoever was the prime minister, because they were just like, you know, going through the most motions in the in the commons and the lords. Yeah, the corn bill and the reform bill and domestic things. Yes. Foreign policy. No. That was all being done by others. That's incredible. I'm going to ask us to look at one interesting one to end with. Um, I'm hoping this is going to be quite kind of tame by comparison to everyone else. Queen Victoria, perhaps not the first woman that we'd associate with the Duke, but they did have a significant relationship there as kind of Wellington as elder statesman advising young Queen. People inevitably like to make comparisons with Church and Elizabeth II. I'm not a fan of those kinds of comparisons. I don't think they work. But talk us through what they thought of each other. Wellington's relationship with Queen Victoria began when William IV was on the throne and when the Duchess of Kent kept pushing to make herself regent in the event that he died, King William. So there was this whole big, another thing behind the scenes that Wellington was involved in. You know, the Duchess of Kent had thought up this whole PR countrywide trip for her daughter when it was obvious that she was the heir presumptive, always forgetting that King William was still alive. (laughs) And it, you know, wasn't really- Yeah, minor detail. So for many years, Wellington was the, you know, oil on the squeaky wheel and keeping her quiet and, you know, keeping William IV under the boil. Let's put it that way, where the, where the Duchess was concerned. In fact, William IV said to Victoria on her 18th birthday, which she just made, he wrote to her and he said, look, 
I know what your mother's like. I know what your life is like. When you turn 18, I'm going to give you X amount of money every year. And I'll give you enough money for your own house, you know, your own establishment. And I'll, I'll do what I can to get you out of this Sir John Conroy, Duchess of Kent horror that you've been living in. So she was very well aware of the Duke all these years in a capacity that wasn't like the prime minister or, you know. So she wasn't so happy with him. She was happy with him at first and then it went sour with the bedchamber crisis. When Peel, you know, she had Melbourne as her first prime minister who she was very close to. Melbourne who, you know, was married to Lady Caroline Lamb and was brother to Emily Cooper, who, whatever. Again, we need the court guide. But by, you know, by the time she, Melbourne left her service as prime minister, Wellington by now was well into his 70s. So, you know, he was like the old guard and not at all like Melbourne, not at all what she thought she needed. You know, he, he represented the restrictions of the previous century, really. And then when he, you know, he, he backed up Peel and Melbourne when they told her that she can't get rid of all the, all the Tory ladies in her bed chain, all her ladies of waiting. You know, you have to have an equal mixture just so people don't put their noses out of joint. And she couldn't see it. She wanted all wigs and she wanted this and they fell out over that. You know, after a while, she saw the error of her ways and she did write later in life, I was really wrong and I shouldn't have done that to him and I wish I could take it back. Her and Albert did eventually make it up to him, you know, and they, they did invite him to Windsor and you know, he was God, godparent to their child, Arthur, who they named after him. But his, you know, his kind of behind the scenes intrigue in being the go-to fix-it guy, not so much with Queen Victoria. Because, you know, she was two generations past already, if you think about it. You know, two, two kings away. And it just, it, it wasn't the same anymore, where... People relied on him that way. And I think at that time is when he truly did finally get to rest. And he spent most of his days at Walmart. That was his favorite place, he and Charles Arbuthnot. And, you know, everybody, the Salisbury's and the Bergerishes and the this one and the that one. And there was always this big house full of family for him. And I think he was in the... The, maybe the final decade, he finally did get to rest. And that's a lovely point at which to end. Christine, this has been fascinating. It's been eye-opening. Um, I've only picked my gob up off the floor about eight times over the course of the last <laughs> hour. Thank you ever so much for coming on here. Thank to, you for having me, me Zach. Um, folks can find your book, Waterloo Witness, it's available from Pen and Sword. Go and buy it from Pen and Sword, folks, because as I keep emphasizing to people, if you buy directly from the publisher, then the author, who only gets a meagre cut at the best of times, actually gets some money. Whereas if you buy it from Amazon, most of that money just goes to Jeff Bezos. 
Jeff Bezos doesn't need your money because he can afford to go to space. Whereas we quite like to bring Christine over here to, you know, do some tours and, and stuff. And that's an important thing to emphasize that you are also a tour guide. Um, I'm now desperately trying to think the name of your website. Is it Number One London? Number One London Tours. And we have a Waterloo tour going in September 2022. Me, we being myself and Gareth Glover, who I believe he and I will be together with you on a future podcast and we'll be talking about that fingers crossed we can absolutely make that happen because I can see that being an absolute riot two people with very different ways of coming at this period just offering a masterclass. Uh, that's that's something to to salivate over for the future as far as people do salivate over podcasts this has turned into quite an odd metaphor let's 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 draw this to a close <laughs> Christine thanks once again thank you Zach if you've been inspired to read further into the ideas raised in this episode, don't rush off to Amazon. I have an alternative suggestion. Why not support independent bookstores and your boy producing this podcast by buying them via the Napoleonicist bookshop? Click the link in the description and you'll find a vast range of titles that will be of interest, all arranged by theme, and in the process, independent booksellers get a cut and the Napoleonicist gets a cut, so there are many who benefit. Do remember to leave a like and review, and as you know I always thank my Patreon supporters, but have good news for those who don't want to make a regular contribution, but do want to leave a one-off tip. You can now tip the Napoleon Assist on Ko-fi, the link is in the description, and know in advance that your generosity, whatever the size of the tip, is hugely appreciated. And of course, no episode would be complete without a shout out to my Patreon supporters, who keep the podcast going through their subscriptions. There are some exclusive perks, including discount codes for pen and sword, voting rights, and even bespoke one-to-ones with me. So be sure to check out the link in the description for more details. A particular thanks to my Emperor-level patron, Mark Staus, my Commander patrons, Ger Brown and Jane Davis, and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Colin Fieldhouse, Ryan Diamond, Alexandra Leon, Josh Keeney, Gareth Copeland, Ross Flowers, Jim Deary, Lucy Tatner, James Bevan, Roy Muir, Lynn Dawson, Beatrice de Graff, Anna Vakulenko, John Haynes, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Alex Churchill, and Rob Griffith. I will be back in just a few days' time as Wellington Month continues to ramp up as it reaches its climax. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.